Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we're going to be talking about the Hong Kong Film Award nominations. Kevin's going to be telling us about Taiwan cinema in crisis. Also, some Louis Koo news. And for our films this week, Kevin looks at the Taiwanese film 52 Hertz, I Love You. And I'll be talking about the 215 Singaporean film, Our Sister Mambo. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and sitting at his reviews desk inside a defunct film museum is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello there. Hey there, Paul. How, how are things? Uh, doing well. Doing well. Uh, been trying to keep busy. Unfortunately, I have not been out to see any films. I was planning to try to get down to see the new Journey to the West, which is playing down in Miami. Haven't been able to do that quite yet. I'd also planned to try and get out to see the uh, Tween-tastic film that I was going to review this week, The Space Between Us. Haven't been able to get out and see that either, so I made a last-minute switch because you had talked about, uh, of course, the Michelle Chong uh, film uh, Lulu the Movie a couple episodes back. And so I thought, well, this would be a good opportunity for me to sit down and really dig into her 2015 film, Our Sister Mambo. So I'll be talking about that a little bit later today. Um, but uh, just, you know, gen in general, been watching a lot of stuff on Netflix. There's this new series with Drew Barrymore and Timothy, Timothy Oliphant that started called uh, Santa Clarita Diet, which is mm -hmm. super dark and super funny. Um, and it's really almost like sitcom format. It's It doesn't have a laugh track or anything, but it's like 22, 25-minute episodes. Um, ten episode series, really easy to sort of get down and get into, but really dark at times, dark comedy. Um, and we are both really loving it, uh, my wife and I. And so if you're into something that's a little bit different and you're not too sick of the zombie genre, I think we talked about this a little while ago, um, it's kind of a different spin, a different take, and it's fun. Um, if, you, if you, again, like sort of dark, sometimes gross uh, humor, uh, you, you know, check that out. Another bit of Netflix goodness that's going to be coming your way if you're an anime fan is net. This is coming out of Netflix Japan, I believe, but it's also going to be on U.S. Netflix, and I'd assume because it's coming out of Netflix Japan, it'll be over on Hong Kong Netflix as well. A new reboot of the Cyborg 009 series um, is going to be launching, I believe, this Friday at the time we're recording. So this is the first week of February. Um, so again, something to look forward to on Netflix. I mean, Netflix is really killing it with just lots of stuff to watch and lots of original content um, to watch. So this is one I'm definitely, I've already got it in my list and I'm waiting for it to drop. Um, and I still haven't even finished the current season of the, um, of their season two of their Voltron show. So I'm really backed up with uh, sort of television and streaming stuff to watch. Paul, did you watch uh, Call of Heroes in Hong Kong before you leave? You left? Yeah, yeah, I saw that because that was midsummer. 
Ah, um, uh, okay. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was August. But yeah, so so that's also on Netflix US now because of uh, thanks to the Wellgo. So Wellgo, they have this thing where film, uh, soon after the film comes out on DVD, they put it on Netflix pretty much soon after that. So I think uh, you're going to start to get some of the f- big films that you might have missed in the last sort of half year, Paul. So it's now uh-huh. Call of Heroes' turn. And, you know, next thing you know, it'll be, um, what, like like Railroad Tigers or uh, uh, Operation Mekong or some yeah. of the uh, bigger Chinese books. Yeah, I think uh, I know that Operation Mekong is already on um, Hong Kong iTunes. Hong Kong Blu-ray. Yeah, and um, I've, I've seen it there, but I haven't rented it yet. Um but yeah, it's I, I'm I'm excited that they're starting to get into some of that content that I that I missed out. But I did see call. I, I went to see that with um, with you guys, as I remember. It wasn't the yeah, last film we saw. Uh, that was the uh, <laughs> last we saw. Much much worse. I remember yeah, the Alan Tam movie. <laughs> um, but no, that was probably the best last film uh, that I ended up seeing in Hong Kong. Fooling around Jiang Hu, which, by the way, is coming on a DVD this week. If you would like to re-examine your life priorities, I suggest you try and spend uh, 20 US dollars on fooling around Jiang Hu, and then you might give up on buying films forever. Yes, indeed, indeed. All right, well, um, before we get into our films, uh, film reviews for this week, let me throw the ball back over to Hong Kong in with Kevin uh, with this week's news. <laughs> Over here at the news desk, uh, a heads up for uh, you guys who are interested in Hong Kong cinema. The uh, web, and I think Paul, you might have promoted this a couple months ago when it first started reg- regist- registration. But uh, Hong Kong University has now is doing a free online course about Hong Kong cinema through Global Lens, and I think the the course has started, right, Paul? Yeah, it started officially yesterday because uh, I had signed up for it. And I got the uh, email, and so you can go there. This is the first week. It's going to be a six-week program, and it's completely free. You just have to go on to uh, edX. Um, you can look for the, the course via the, either the university or the name Hong Kong Cinema Through a Global Lens. And this is a course that's being led by pretty much the, all the people who are involved in the comparative literature department, like Gina Marchetti, um, Stacey Lee Ford, and others um, who pretty much do a lot of the high-level academic writing. I mean, pretty much anything you pick up being published by uh, Hong Kong University Press or a lot of the other um, academic journals out there, you're going to see these names pop up. So they're doing this um, this six-week program. It is absolutely free. You just need to register on edX, and you can use, if you don't want to like give them email and stuff, you can just use a Facebook account or a um, Google Plus account, I believe. And you, if you want to sort of make it official, they do have a sort of top-up option where you can get a certificate if you complete the course. There is some coursework you have to do. I think there's some, like, short quizzes that you take at the end of each week. And the passing rate, I believe, is you have to have a 50% passing rate, um, which I'm guessing, you know, with an online course like this, is not going to be um, too intensive. And you can get a certificate, and if you want that certificate option, I think it's an upgrade of 50 U.S. dollars. And you can upgrade that up through until, I think, the last week of the program. So you can start out, see if you like it. If you really like it and you want to get that certificate, you can do the upgrade option. Um, I haven't started the coursework myself. I've just been sort of to the intro page. I've looked at what they're going to be covering in terms of topics. Um, They've got, I think, the first week is on Jackie Chan. Uh, second week is on Bruce Lee. They're doing one on um, Autumn's Tale. Um, they're doing one, of course, on 
uh, Wong Kar Wai and In the Mood for Love. And uh, I think there's two other topics which um, I can't bring to my mind at the moment. But go on and, you know, and check it out. Like I said, it doesn't cost anything. And if you're interested in Hong Kong cinema and you want to take a class on it, you know, here's your opportunity to do so from the people who teach this stuff at University of Hong Kong. So check it out. Yeah, I believe that uh, Autumn's Tale is an absolutely essential uh, part of Hong Kong cinema and actually quite not talked about at all from uh, for foreigners. I mean, they because they like the charm for action films, they like the Bruce Lee stuff, but and they always overlook the the rom coms and dramas. But I think uh, I'm glad that they're including uh, Autumn's Tale because anyone who's local who's interested in in, in uh, Hong Kong cinema, they would find an Autumn's Tale is a, a, a absolutely essential film. Yeah, indeed. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, check it out. Six weeks, not a big investment of time. And, uh, you know, you just might learn something. Because you're not going to learn anything here. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, so next bit of news, of course, it's award season, Hong Kong Film Awards. That's right. The uh, big announcement for the Hong Kong Film Awards, uh, the nominations, uh, was today. And uh, my reaction, uh, as if you saw my Twitter, it was, what? Huh? Oh, that was not bad. Why? <laughs> That's pretty much my reaction the whole time. Um, so the basics, um, the film Soulmate, uh, the um, um, youth, I didn't want to say like, well, girls flick, uh, leads the way with 12 nominations um, with best film, best director, best um, screenplay, best cinematography, two best actress nominations, just like um, just like they were in, uh, uh, just like they did in uh, Golden Horse Awards, and a best new director uh, nomination for uh, Derek Zhang. Um, right behind it is uh, Cold War Two with uh, ten nominations, um, of course, including the usual the best film, best screenplay, um, but funny enough, no best director nomination. Uh, and also no best actor nomination for Aaron it's kind of uh, awkward because Aaron was the one who was um, announcing the nominations today in Hong Kong so when it got to best actor he says Cold War 2 he said Leung Ka Fai's name instead of his so um, I, I'm glad he didn't try to sneak that one in while he was announcing it um, and then you got uh, Trevisa with 7 nominations uh, you have uh, Weeds on Fire with 8 nominations uh, also, Mad World, a film that I really like, and uh, it's quite unfair that it didn't get a Best Picture nomination, but it did get uh, six nominations. Um, and yeah, um, so that's the sort of general gist of it. You can see, uh, look for a, a full list on uh, www.hkfaa.com and just click on nominees and make sure you turn off that really annoying background music. But looking at some of the details, um, the whoa part. Um, Philip Kern, uh, who you may have seen in you know every other Hong Kong film, um, uh, gets his first nomination, uh, Best Supporting Actor in Trevisa. He plays the best friend uh, of the uh, Lam Katong character in the film. Also, Sean Yu, his very, very first acting nomination, the Best Actor nomination for uh, Mad World. Um, Eric Zhang, who plays his dad in the film, also got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Um, and Charmaine Fong, who plays his ex-girlfriend, also has a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Uh, Elaine Jin, who plays uh, the Sean Yu's uh, character's mother in the film, also a Best Supporting Actress nomination. So a lot of major uh, acting uh, uh, accolades going around for that film. So those are the really big surprise. Um, the what? 
worked. So Soulmate gets, like I said, Soulmate, which is a film that I'm not particularly thrilled about. I don't think it's that bad, but I don't think it's that great either. Got 12 nominations, including, um, and I guess this is a cool part, is that two of the Best Director nominees, um, that's um, Wong Chun for Matt Whirl and, and um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Derek Zhang uh, for Soulmate. They both have two nominations as directors, one for Best Director and uh, Best New Director. Uh, and I don't think that's ever happened before. And I think that's very exciting because it's sort of showing this this new industry recognition for younger, newer directors. And it's showing a real huge shift because the, the awards like to, you know, give they're very safe. You know, they would give a lot of nominations to Choi Hark or Derek Yee or uh, Johnny Toe or the same old people. But now they're nom- they're nom- they've nominated two new directors for Best Director. And that's very exciting um, for the Hong Kong film industry, I think. Um, but also Cold War? Cold War 2? Uh, so it didn't get a Best Director nomination, but it got 10. Like, it got um, it got Best Screenplay, which is ter- which is a- a- absurd if you've seen the film. And, and of course, Best Film and all those nominations. It, it's, I think it's one of those, um, the general Hong Kong rule is that if your film makes a ton of money, it must be good. So let's give it a bunch of nominations. Um, Mermaid. Also got eight nominations, including a Best Original Song nomination for Stephen Chow because he he wrote the uh, lyrics uh, for the song that that the main character sings in the film. Uh, Remy also got a Best um, uh, Film nomination, Best Director, of course, for uh, Stephen Chow um, and Best Screenplay. Even though it's weird that only Stephen Chow got the Best Screenplay nomination and not the other seven writers who wrote the film. Mm. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Let's talk about the why, the what the WTF one. And that continues on what I was talking about, Cold War 2. Janice Mann got a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Cold War 2. Now, you've seen the film. That is the most annoying character in the entire film. And not because it's Janice Mann. It's because the character... And as as friend of the show Kozo, uh, Ross Chan, said on, on, on Twitter, she wouldn't even get a nomination for Best Plot Device. That's how bad she is. Like her character is is remarkably dumb for a film that pretends to be smart, and and essentially is the most annoying character for acting just so incredibly dumb. And and Janice Mann, uh, she does what um a lot of Hong Kongers, Hong Kong netizens call it JM tone, as in she mixes um. Which is what I guess a lot of sort of pretend fake ABCs do in Hong Kong is that they like to mix in English at the like least least um, coherent places, and you kind of see this if you see Cold War Two. Um, yeah, it's just a really odd nomination, uh, and also the other sort of odd nomination is in the best new actor category, uh, going to uh, pop singer James Eng for um, Happiness. I don't even remember him being the film. Maybe because Kara Wai is so good, and and I guess you know you only remember main two the two main characters, and you forget that this guy's even in the film. But he got in a in a in a year where you have so many uh, new films with um, uh, new directors with younger actors, and you you nominate one that you barely remember in the film. It's just really uh, odd. Um, so uh, uh, yeah. So also, oh, I guess. Um, the main, the main, uh, another sort of crisis in the industry uh, po- uh, topic will be the best actor nominations. Now, listen, except for Sean Yu, listen to this list and see if it sounds familiar to you. Francis Ng, Lon Kafai, Richie Ren, 
Nam Katong. Are any of these people actually born after the 60s? Seriously, like, I mean, okay, Richie Ren, I think, was born in the 70s, but come on, like, I think Sean Yu is the youngest one in there, and he's 35. Mm. All right? <laughs> and he's been working the issue for like 10, 15 years before he got this, before he actually got recognized as an actor. Um, kind of ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so that's it. I mean, you can see the rest of the list. And oh, also, this year, they seem to be rewarding um, Liu Kai-Chi style overacting in the Best Supporting Actor category because Mantat, who who totally was about to pop a, pop a blood vessel every scene he's in the menu, uh, got nominated for Best Supporting Actor uh, for, I guess, screaming incessantly for half the film. And also, of course, Liu Kai-Chi got <laughs> nominated. <laughs> we should just call it the uh, Liu Kai-Chi School of Acting um, uh, category. Um and of course, you got, you got uh, uh, um, but then it's balanced by really great performances like Eric Zhang and Matt Worrell, Paul Chen um, in Book of Love, which, you know, okay, it was a pretty good performance. And of course, Philip Kern in, in Trevisa. Um, Paul, it's sad. You haven't seen a lot of these films, so it's hard to ask you what, what you think about it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as I look at the, the listing in the notes here. I'm very happy that uh, Philip Kung is getting some recognition. It's hard for me because I haven't seen Mad World yet, so it's hard for me to really say if he's more deserving than um, Sean Yu in, you know, in in terms of that nomination. But for me, in Trevisa, for sure, that storyline, that segment, I for me, worked the best. And in part, it was because his performance and the things he was doing um, really make this, made that segment work um, in, in sort of... Uh, contrast to the the darkness of gordon lamb's character so i'm happy to see him getting some recognition because you're right you know it's like he's the he's the uh you know the everywhere guy who's been in so many things and really hasn't been recognized for the work that he's been doing yeah i think because lamb should had already has enough nominations so the hong kong film industry decided okay philip kern's next in line let's give him like a few nominations. Um, also, I guess worth noting that, um, so like I was saying, Richie Ren um, nominated for Trevisa. Lam Ka Tung also nominated for Trevisa, but this is Lam Ka Tung's first uh, Best Actor nomination. Mm. And I think I couldn't think of a better film to, uh, to not only to nominate him for, but I couldn't, um, I'm really glad that two of the three leads uh, for this really great, great film uh, got recognized. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you have such great films in this listing and then it's like they just threw cold water in there to kind of fatten it fatten it out (laughs) (laughs) well a mermaid i mean let's say i okay let's face it i love mermaid and i really like it as a stephen chow film but come on yeah yeah i I, i'd agree um it you know it's uh i i guess they just figure it's stephen chow so they gotta you know they gotta throw some love his way so he'll keep keep making movies maybe i don't know (laughs) honestly i'd be surprised if he even shows up to the ceremony (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't. I don't expect him if he, especially if he wins the best song award. I, I don't expect him to be there to receive it. Yeah. Anyway, um, this year, uh, the the host, um, oh, sorry, I think Lo Ching Wan was the host last year. But I remember there is, um, I would double check who's the host this year. But um, this year's uh, award will be held on April 9th. Um, I believe that uh, I will be doing a live blog. Uh, I think I'll be in. Hong Kong. I'm pretty sure I'll be in Hong Kong. And even if not, last year, um, the award worked with this video streaming platform named TFI to do uh, live streaming. So um, you can follow my live blog and you can watch the show at the same time if we can get up uh, in time for it. 
Um, also, the, this year's uh, last year's host was Lao Chengwan. This year's host, even better, is an other tanned, the tanned one. Louis Koo will be doing his first awards hosting duty as the host of this year's uh, Hong Kong Film Awards. So already very exciting. Excellent, excellent. A, a, a friend brought this up: is that Louis Koo was in like like twenty movies last year, right? Yeah, I think. Maybe sorry, maybe I lost count. Maybe it's twenty five, but none of his twenty five films were nominated for best film. I mean, this guy is in every other Hong Kong film, and yet he could not be in a film that was nominated for an award. Uh, well, he was in Lime Walker, which is nominated for best new director. Also in Three, which got um, Johnny Toe his uh, I don't know, like his his twentieth best uh, best director nomination. But Louis Koo just can't seem to get himself in a best act a best film nominee. Yep, yep, he's always playing second fiddle. His day will come, right? His day will come. Oh, I'm I'm sure he's just crying and wiping his tears with a thousand dollar bills that he has at home. Yeah, and his uh yeah. his uh hot toys Donnie Yen Chirut Imwe figure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh so we'll be talking more about the film awards once uh, they actually happen and we'll be sure to remind you all um, when that's going to occur, and if you want to follow along with Kevin's very entertaining live blog of the ceremony. Probably more entertaining than the ceremony itself, I will say that. Uh, next bit of news, Taiwan cinema in crisis. What's this about, Kevin? Yeah. Yep, um, as I sort of just, uh, implied, or I talked about this last week, but um, the Chinese New Year uh, box... Uh, uh, slot in Taiwan. Uh, the films didn't do very well. If essentially they're all flops. Uh, even though it, it was one of the most competitive uh, Lunar New Year uh, slots in recent memory, um, none of these sort of big films managed to make money. They lost to uh, three Hollywood blockbusters, and it actually signals a very serious crisis going on in Taiwan cinema. I think um, now. Um, so two of the three films. Um, 52 Hertz, I Love You, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and Hanky Panky, the uh, the local comedy starring uh, Zhuge Liang. Those are very local Taiwanese productions with no sort of China market, right? Um, and then you have The Village of No Return, the film starring Xu Qi and Joseph Chang. It was shot in Taiwan, but it had um, an investment, a major investment by Wanda, the Chinese company. So it's actually a co-production. But... The problem is that the film was um, essentially knocked out of cinemas or was was very much uh, uh, underwhelmed um, or pretty much buried because um, netizens um, suggested or, or or they think that director Chen Yushun may be a, a pro-Taiwanese independence. Um, so the film sort of left to have to sort of had to rely on Taiwan market to make back its money, but none of the films did well, and this is a major major problem because um, it kind of shows a contrast between the Taiwan market and the Hong Kong market, and I think the fact that um, Taiwan market cannot just simply cannot sustain its own film industry when you have three major Chinese New Year releases and all three of them flop. Um, I mean, at least even um, at least Yuppie Fantasia in Hong Kong, at least that one made at least ten million and actually make that will make will probably break even by the time it, it its run ends, and that's a pure sort of Hong Kong film. There's no no need for a China release, and there's no China release for it. But Taiwan, all three films are made at a budget that there's no way that a, a local box office uh, grows to sustain it, and that sort of highlights, I think, a major problem and. 
it makes the China market too important to ignore. Um, it, it, it reminds me of what happened to Hong Kong cinema in early 2000s is that it was in such a crisis and box office fell so dramatically. People stopped watching Hong Kong cinema and it, the overseas money dried up. And when the China, China market opened up to them, they all had to go up there. They had no choice. What else? What else are they going to do? Right? Um, Hong Kong market can't sustain it. And so they needed to make money in China because the Chinese market, you're opening up a billion people, right? Potentially even even 10%, 1% of those people watch a Hong Kong film, it would bury the Hong Kong box office in like a day, right? So um, it kind of shows that there's a real sort of problem in the greater China region is that you got Hong Kong audiences not showing up for Hong Kong films, you got Taiwan audiences not showing for Taiwan films. And yet, I think people in both sides, they don't want their local cinema to be compromised by the Chinese market. But yet, they don't go and support their own films. They can't, they can't pull a Korea. Korea can, Korea needs a Chinese market, but at the same time, its own films can still make money at home. And that's something that, that that Taiwan and Hong Kong still cannot do. And yet its audience keep trying to, or even I think overseas Hong Kong film fans, they're they're wary of the over the China compromise. And yet there's still not enough money to go and justify these filmmakers uh, staying in in China, uh, or staying in Hong Kong or or in Taiwan. So you see Xu Qi, who's totally gone essentially spends half the time, most of the time in China anyway, doing films. She hasn't done Taiwan film in, in I don't know how long. I mean, Village of No Return is her first Taiwanese film in in some time. Um, I think she only does like a Taiwan film maybe once a year at the most. Um, and Hong Kong stars. I mean, we can't get Stephen Chow to come back. We can't get Trey Hart to come back. We can't get uh, Andy Lau. We can barely get Andy Lau to come back, but only for New Year and when he's trampled on by a horse. Um, and we can't get... Um, uh, most of our directors back because they we can't hold them here anymore, and it's partly because the audiences don't support it, and it's because the market is up there is too great. And as much as we don't like the Chinese, the China compromise, we don't like China coming in and 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 diluting our films. Is what ha- is what happens? It's, it's something that has to happen, and um, and I fear for Taiwan cinema because it's not like Taiwan makes bad films Taiwan still makes great film and as I'll talk about 52 Hertz I love you it, it still makes very well well you know good looking and polished commercial cinema that that should be doing well in Taiwan and yet you can't and I don't know why and there's a lot of problems in the Taiwan film industry and but none of it really not a lot of it has to do with the Taiwan audience itself but it, it's really hard to get Taiwan people to go watch their own films and um, and I don't know why the Taiwan film industry doesn't get any sort of coverage um, outside of, I guess, the show or back when I was at Film Biz Asia. Um, it almost feels like the international film audiences and even Taiwan audience have sort of abandoned Taiwan film industry um, uh, to fend for itself. And then so, you know, and then when it goes to China, then people go, oh, you traitors, you guys sold out to the China money. Well, what the hell are we supposed to do? You know, well, it- you, you were talking about Xu Qi and, and Taiwanese films. Um, what, what, what about the, the Assassin from uh, 2015? Is that considered a Taiwanese film or is that something a little bit different? 
it's a co-production. Uh, even so, even um, 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 Ho Xiaoxian to get the assassin made, he needed Chinese money. I think China put up I think fifty or sixty percent of the budget because it was his most expensive film. Um, and of course, he had to go to China to do promotion. I mean, when do you see Ho Xiaoxian having to go to China to do marketing to do promotion? Because you know he needs that market. Um, because he his movies even his movie costs too much to make money back in Taiwan now. Mm. So um, you know people in and I, and again again Fifty Two Hertz I Love You being a case example. It's made on a two point five million U.S. dollar budget, which is not is ten percent of La La Land. I think the opening shot of La La Land costs costs more than all of Fifty Two Hertz I Love You, um, and yet. The film won't even be close to breaking even in Taiwan, um, and so so, you know, it's it's already really difficult to make a living in the film industry. And in fact, I would not have a freelance career. I have to admit, as much as I complain about China diluting our films, blah blah, localism and all that crap, it, without the Chinese market, I would not have a freelance career. Most of the films I do are co-productions or pure China films. Um, so even I have to admit that I need the market as a as a as a as a subtitler or as a freelance translator for films. Mm. Um, so it's a very, I think this this New Year period um, in Taiwan has sort of inspired this little little rant. It's not I'm sorry, it's not very timely news, but um, I think it's a it's a very much a um, in, interesting issue and an interesting thing to point out. And this isn't taking. A position. I mean, it's almost like saying that the Chinese market is a, is a is a necessary evil in terms of artistic integrity. I think, it, and it's kind of sad. But um, unless, and I I, th- I guess it's sort of a call to people: if you don't support Hong Kong cinema or the, the the Taiwan cinema industry with your wallet, there's no reason to keep making movies for you. Yeah, and this this is an issue we've uh, discussed at length offline. I think before about. You know the, the the sort of downward spiral spiral of Hong Kong cinema, where we you know we joke and we laugh about Patrick Kong films and and other films you know Wang Jing films that t- tend to lack quality, and then because of that lack of quality, they don't attract the local audience, and then you end up having to do partnerships and co-productions in order to to get things done, to get things made, if you want to be working in the film industry. So. It's it's certainly understandable um, that you you have this kind of issue, and I know it's easy to sort of stand on a a high horse and say, oh, you know, we want we want pure Hong Kong films, we don't want co-productions, we don't want the hand of China, and and you know, we want ghost stories and and these kinds of things. But as if the audience isn't going to go out there and support them, they're just not going to get made. At the end of the day, it's still a business, right? You know, if if I think if at least um, and I'm trying to do the math here, if Ten percent of the Hong Kong population watches as much Hong Kong films as us, the movie group, do, and we watch about seventy to eighty percent of all Hong Kong releases every year. So we get to actually we get to step on a high horse and say <laughs> we want local cinema. We actually, you know, how many freaking Patrick Kong movies in the sit through every year because you people, you people won't go watch Hong Kong cinema. Like, what, do you, what do you mean, you people? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, so we get to we actually earn our place on the high horse. We got a seat. We got a permanent freaking seat at the high horse. We get to point our fingers and goes, "You people aren't for 
I mean, for Christ's sake, lucky fat man, people. Three words, lucky fat man. Yes. Well, I mean, and historically, if we look at this, there was a time when the China market didn't matter uh, in terms of financial return because you had so much local support. You also had a great deal of sort of international support from various diasporic communities, be they, you know, uh, in the UK or overseas and places like Singapore and Taiwan. You know, those audiences were very active cinema goers. You know, you go back and you look at sort of the shift in cinema trends back in the 70s when Cantonese language films became more popular and leading all into the boom of the 80s and, and ultimately to the, you know, sort of simmering down in the 90s to, into to what we have today. So there is a, you know, it is possible. It's just, you know, audiences' tastes have changed and what they're willing to sit through has changed. I, I think part of it is sort of them holding on to the wallet closer and they think that certain things aren't aren't um, worth their money. I think that there is a major problem with, with what, how people value films or how people value culture, cultural products, so to speak, right? They value entertainment as something that they deserve, as something they should get for free. And but it's not. It's just like do you deserve as a human being, do you deserve chocolate bars for free? No. I don't think so. Do I deserve a free meal at McDonald's every week? Like, no. I mean so I don't understand why cultural product I guess because they're entertainment, so to speak, why do people feel like they're entitled to entertainment product for free? Just you know, unlike anything else in life that they pay for. Yeah. Well this is perhaps a uh, an issue that we can get into deeper discussion um, at a later time because we I could go on at length you know going back into, <laughs> the, into the the whole downward downward decline because of you know the piracy issue back in the you know late 90s early 2000s going to Mongkok and you know seeing all the the pirated DVD sellers and and those things and then that leading into the sort of the torrents and the online stuff that goes on today. It's just, you know, an extension that's kind of built into the, the whole sort of psyche of, you know, not wanting to pay for, for media and, and that, that sense of being able to just get it for, for nothing. Um, See, that should be, that should be a, one of the topics of the uh, Hong Kong cinema through global lens course. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I don't, I don't think they're going to get that deep into the discussion. No, we'll see, we'll see. Um, all right, let us get on to our last bit of news and... Uh, I, we were talking about uh, the Cooster uh, a little bit earlier, and uh, you've got some final news to end up with with Mr. Koo. Yeah, con sort of continuing what I was talking about with the downward spiral of Hong Kong cinema, Louis Koo has been named the Hong Kong International Film Festival ambassador for like the 250 year in a row. Um, yeah, he's... <laughs> He's not kidding. He's like, the unaging mummy, right? <laughs> he is the, the I think it's the tanning bed doing something for him. But seriously, I think the Hong Kong International Film Festival they they sort of unveiled their their latest poster. The forty by the way, it's the forty first. So I'm just kidding about being the you know Louis Kubi the two hundred fiftieth ambassador because they've only been around 40, 41 years. But uh, anyway. Um, so they unveiled their, their poster, and also they unveiled that Louis Koo will be the festival ambassador for, like, I think it's like the fifth or sixth year in a row. I don't remember how many years it's been already. But doesn't that sort of signals, you know, if Louis Koo continues to be sort of the representative of Hong Kong cinema um, for six years in a row, it's like, dude, that's a generation in, in the entertainment industry, I think. 
wh- why can't they find another actor to represent Hong Kong cinema? Um, it's or the Hong Kong Film Festival. It's just one year they they brought on William Yuan, but William Yuan was the co-ambassador alongside guess who? Louis Ku. <laughs> um, and the fact that we were talking about how Louis Ku is in like twenty films last year, and I, I think I guess I was exaggerating, but only by about five films. I mean, let's face it, he was in like. Every, we would get a Louis Ku film every other month, I think. Um, it, 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 it's sort of sad. And, you know, I guess the Cooster doesn't really have to do much. Again, he probably gets paid. He does the little little ad for the for the festival. He shows up to the uh, PR events. And then he's done. He gets paid and he's done. He doesn't actually show up to movies. I mean, let's face it. I think I don't think Louis Ku watches many movies. But anyway, um, it, it's, it's, again, sort of a bit sad that Louis Ku is the best and I guess the only person they could come up with to represent Hong Kong cinema in 2017. Well, it's because Donnie Yen turned him down. So, <laughs> Oh, ouch. <laughs> Donnie Yen's too busy. <laughs> now, I, to, to, be, to be serious, though, I you know, with as many films as he's making, you would think that, in fact, Louis is too busy, right? Because, I mean, he's he, he did so many productions last year. I mean, maybe he's turning toning it down a little bit this year, but um, you know, even so, you you would think that this would be something that he's just had enough of and, and wants to focus more on doing films. Or maybe he's just hoping the exposure will get him in Star Wars 9 or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, last year, um, the magazine, I did want to do an interview with Lewis for the magazine um, when we found out about the ambassador thing last year. I think it was around the same time, um, same time last year, but he had to go to Brazil to shoot Line Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess during the festival, he's probably shooting something else. And this man just has like, it's, it's endless. I mean, yeah. he's working. I mean, no one will, will, will deny that Louis Ku is hardworking. All right. He's probably one of the most hardworking people in Hong Kong cinema and great. I mean, he makes a lot of money and he's in a lot of films and he, I guess has, he single handedly, um, uh, pays for the living of at least five assistants, which is great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it's just like there's always a problem, and and I think it's been a problem for the last twenty years is that we don't have a strong enough uh, generation to follow him up with. And it's great that news directors are popping up, but what about actors? Um, it makes me worry when you know Andy Lau's out of commission for nine months. We're not going to have a Hong Kong blockbuster. Yeah, a, for nine there's months. a va- there's a vacuum. <laughs> there's <laughs> a vacuum. Like a, the sound of a sucking black hole because Andy's yeah. out of commission. So while Andy's out of commission, what if Lewis also suffers some? He also gets trampled by by a by a camel no, <laughs> somewhere. No, say it ain't so. We're screwed. He's, We're he's, screwed. He's, we don't have. He needs the work. He, he's he's got a whole line of action figures now coming out from all the new Star Wars films that he's got to bust out by now. So yeah, yeah he's. So think about Andy. Andy's out of commission. Lewis would be out of commission. Donnie's in Hollywood. He's like, who? Yeah. Hong Kong? What? Patrick? Who? Like, <laughs> he's never coming back. Who are we gonna get for our leading man? We're gonna be getting Eddie Pang in every movie again. <laughs> and Nick Chung. Nick Chung. Nick 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 Say or Nick Chung? No, Nick, Nick Chung. Yeah. Nick Chun is like, he's like, I'm directing now. I'm too good for this stuff. Like, just acting thing. I'm not doing Wong Jing movies anymore. <laughs> John Fat is like, I gotta go hike. Like, pay me 40 mil or I'm just gonna go hike in the mountain or something. Like, dude, Hong Kong cinema is, is getting to a really sad place in terms of actors. Yeah, that's why we get Bob Lamb. Bob Lamb, the new up-and-comer, right? Yep. <laughs> All right. 
Well, that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. We'll be back after this short musical break, and Kevin will give us his review of 52 Hertz, I Love You. Welcome back. So our review this week for East Screen, Kevin's going to be telling us about the Taiwanese musical 52 Hertz, I Love You. That's right. Uh, if you're not tired of my voice yet, 52 Hertz, I Love You is the latest film by director Wei Tushun. Um, you may know him better as the director of uh, Cape Number no. 7, which remains the highest grossing Taiwanese film of all time, and also Sidik Bali, which remains on record as the most expensive Taiwanese film of all time. Um, he also produced Kano, the uh, baseball film, which I think marks as one of the longest Taiwanese film ever made. So this man has a thing for records, clearly. Um, but this is his newest uh, feature film, um, and it's a musical. Um, Set on Valentine's Day in Taipei, this musical follows four people in and out of love. Flower shop owner Xiao Xin, played by Zhuang, Chuan Chuan Ying, uh, spends all day delivering flowers to happy couples, but she laments not being able to find a love of her own. After 10 years of guitar shop owner Dai He, played by Su Min Rupi, um, Lele, played by Miffy Chang, has grown tired of living in debt and realizes that love just isn't in love to, enough to live on. However, Dai He is completely oblivious to Lele's displeasure and plans an extravagant proposal that night. Xiao An, um, is played by Lin Chuan Yu, is talented at making chocolate, but he lacks the courage to tell Lele about his feelings for her. Um, so Asian musicals, they're not really as rare as you would think. So remember, uh, last year we had Johnny Toe's Office, and then um, just last week I caught up with um, Masayuki Suo, the um, uh, Japanese director. Um, his last film, which was uh, Lady Michael, which, uh, by the way, if you don't know who Masayuki Suo is, he directed Shall We Dance? And yeah, so... Uh, so that was his last film, uh, Lady Michael, is also a musical. And um, any other musicals you can think of, Paul? What was the one with Jackie Chung? Um, some years uh, back? Perhaps Love. Yes. Perhaps yeah. Love. Peter Chance, Perhaps Love. Uh, and I think Korean uh, Quiet Family by Kim Ji Woon was a musical. Um, so we do have musicals every once in a while here in Asia. Um, the film is very much a pop opera. I, opera, I think. Not opera, but pop <laughs> opera. Um you get a car, you get a car. Sorry. Uh, it's a pop opera, uh, or as the, uh, the producers claim, is a book musical. So it uses music music and lyrics to replace dialogue, and uh, the, the stars pretty much sing from beginning to end, but there are there is dialogue in the middle um, to fill in the gap between, between songs. Um, so it really depends on how much you are okay with musicals, like straight, full-on, singing musicals and you know a film like office isn't really a, a a strong musical in the sense that um it's musical it has songs but it also has a ton of dialogue to tell the story and the songs are sort of filling in between scenes but this one is kind of opposite it uses dialogue to fill in between songs um now whether you're into the music 
really depends on your tolerance for Chinese pop. And I mean, like, very much Mando pop. Um, and that includes a few schmaltzy ballads. Um, there are subtitles for all the songs in the film. Um, but they, they're very much direct translation. They're not written as lyrics um, like the Chinese one. So you get the meaning of the songs, but um, um, there is going to be that language barrier in terms of hearing the singing and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So there are 18 original songs in the film. Uh, so pretty dense for a 109-minute film. Not all the songs are that great, but uh, there are quite a few, you know, hum, um, uh, catchy, you know, catchy ones that that uh, 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 that that they're good, they're memorable. Um, and, but there's a real risk taking here, I think, in terms of making this an all-out sort of original musicals with all original songs. Uh, even Moulin Rouge, you know, relied on existing songs. Um, a lot of these sort of posts, I guess. And even the musicals it made in Hollywood, they're always based on existing property. I think the last original musical, I mean, La La Land is part of the first musical in in quite a long time to not be based on any existing material. Um, and 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 I think Johnny Toe really did take a risk in making Office with all original songs. Um, so it, it, it's it's and also he doesn't cast um way Tishan also did not cast big stars we'll talk about that in a in a, in a bit um so way Tishan, he's um known for making these big scale films um but he's not a very he, he's not a director of a very distinct style um and he doesn't reinvent the wheel here his direction is very safe it's very straightforward and it's not as flashy as or it's not ex- experimental as johnny toe and he really sort of steps back and lets his cast and the music do really the heavy lifting. I mean, he he executes the thing and and he 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 wrote co-wrote the script with two other writers. Um, but he didn't write any of the lyrics, um, and uh, and of course he didn't write any of the music. He's not a very musical uh, person in the first place, as he admits. So. Um, um, he's very much sort of the master of the project, but he also had to sort of delegate a lot of things to other people uh, creatively. Um, so, so it is a not a very it's not a film with very strong directorial voice, um, and it's a shame that um, it's sort of in the shadow of La La Land. It came it comes out pretty much within two three months of it. Um, it's not as technically a it's not technically accomplished i mean come on it's made with 10 percent of the budget um there's no big you know freeway dance numbers um but there is there are a few um you know few big scenes uh there's uh the the big flower shop is actually uh made a built on a set which is quite um uh, impressive i think if you think about all the stuff that that's needed to build something from scratch um um, and so there are at least three or four sets that were built indoors and quite convincingly um, um, rendered with the help with the help of special effects. Um, but um, it's still a lot of fun to sit through, and it's still the songs are very fun. And it's a very light, um, unlike so unlike uh, Wei Tushin's uh, Cape Number Seven or of course Scenic Bali. 52 Hertz is very light. It's very undemanding, and if you actually do get into it, it's pure joy. Um, it's a very fun film, and and uh, especially for fans of uh, Cape Number Seven, there are quite a few fan service moments for those people. Um, and if you're into the music and you don't feel the urge to clap along by the sing along um, at the end credits, so check if you're a zombie, because uh, you're you know it, it's a very fun film. And like I said, if you're into the music, 
by the end you will feel the urge to to sing along and clap along and it, it's a really fun film um so what Wei Teshun risks here, in addition to doing the original songs, is that he casts four real singers uh, to lead the cast instead of um, uh, casting big stars. Um, so you know, in Bollywood, um, they 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 um, <clears throat> none of the actors do their own singing. Uh, if you if you um, don't know, I'm not sure if you know, but um, but uh, here, um, so if you remember uh, Office, you had uh, Sylvia Chen, Sylvia Chang, and you had Tom Wei, who were not really singers. I mean, it was more important to get big stars. But Wei Tushin thinks differently. He thinks that he decided to get four lead singers of four local bands or four local groups to to lead the cast. And I think it's a risk that absolutely pays off because these guys know how to sing. And Miffy Chang, is, uh, who is in the um, the group um, <clears throat> uh, Men Envy Children, uh, she's the best singer of the bunch. Uh, you have Sumin Rupi, who... Um, who is uh, Aboriginal um, Taiwanese Aboriginal singer, um, and he won the uh, the Golden Horse uh, I think two years ago for for the, his theme song for the uh, for the film uh, Pene, um, and he's a really great singer, and he actually even wrote I think two or three of the songs in the film, and then you have the other the younger stars, of course they're also the lead singers of two other bands, and and hearing real singers do, and they're not they're not musical singers. Because and the songs aren't really musical songs anyway; they're really more pop songs. So, having singers who can do pop songs and who are good at it um, really help. I think uh, make the music musical part even more convincing. Because some of the scenes they actually sing live on the set. Um, hell, even tough guy who decapitated Japanese soldiers in Cedric Bali is singing in the film. Um, so everyone sort of joins in on the fun. Um, the side characters also include an 80s pop singer. Um, I actually don't have her name at the moment. She plays um, Xiaoxin's um, uh, aunt. Um, and, and you tell by... you She has a surprisingly great voice because she is uh, actually a, a pop star from the 80s. Her name is Cindy Shaw, by the way. Um, and then you have Nana Lee, who is also a pop singer, and Sandra Pina, uh, who was most recently seen in See You Tomorrow. They have a small supporting... Um, story. They're not really on the main plot, but they show up sort of throughout the film, and they have their own little number. Um, and they're all really solid performers, and they all add to the film very much. So, if you've been disappointed by Office, or if you've seen Lady Michael, um, and it's a very disappointing musical, I think. Um, I think this one may restore your faith that Asia will make another great musical one day. Um, this is not sort of on the level of La La Land, but it's super enjoyable, and I think it is very well made on its, on its resources, on and it makes the best out of what it has, and I think it's a lot of fun. And and knowing that it's sort of not doing well at the box office, I really really encourage if you're in the region, if you're in the region where you can pay to to watch this. Um, pay to watch this in a cinema go because it really is more infectious with sort of big uh with other people in the cinema and when you sort of just have to watch concentrate on the film uh there's a certain magic to it and i and i and i think it's a really perfect valentine's day movie now how does this compare with something like um uh what was the 2014 rom-com uh cafe waiting love was it called yeah, cafe waiting. Yeah, because I watched the trailer on YouTube, and in the trailer that they have there, they you don't get a sense of this really as a musical, uh, because they just basically play like one of the 
sort of pop rock ballads in the background and they just show a bunch of scenes, right? You don't get a sense that it's like a true musical at all. But the look of it, you know, young people kind of running around doing jobs, falling in love, it felt very familiar. It felt very similar to the, the sort of the look and feel of Cafe Waiting Love. Um, is it is it comparable at all? I mean, is it pretty much a straightforward narrative in terms of, you know, uh, what you'd expect from a Taiwanese comedy these days, just with the addition of being a musical? Um, it does have a nice, a few touches that you don't see in modern Taiwan rom-com. I mean, rom-com, urban rom-com is what Taiwan does the best, and it's what earns the most money. So, for example, Cafe Waiting Love, or um, even at Cafe Six, and of course, You're the Apple of My Eye, which is sort of the, like, and or even uh, Kate Number 7, which in itself is kind of a rom-com. Um, it, it, so even if you remember Kate Number 7, it sort of goes beyond the typical rom-com by presenting this this um, subplot about the the end of Japanese occupation. Um, and and Wei Tishin also does something interesting here, and I was talking about the subplot with uh, Nana Lee and Sandra Pina. Actually, they play a lesbian couple. They're, get, they're trying to get married in Taipei. And, of course, um, a same-sex marriage is a very, very big issue uh, in Taiwan recently because they made their sort of stepping towards legalizing uh, gay marriage. Um, of course, going against a lot of protests against it uh, is a very touchy issue. And, and Wei Tishin sort of adds these little bits and pieces that are sort of not typical rom-com stuff in there um, in a very much a package that is like a rom-com film. But... Um, and of course, you like I was um, like you were saying, Cafe Waiting Love is like a film about young people and you know, falling in love and doing silly things. And and this film is in that package. But in there, you have, for example, the the, the plot between Lele and uh, Ndaha. It's uh, they're older, they're older couple, and they're most of the most of that that is about sort of realistic issues. It's about whether money, where whether love pays the bills. Um, so. Yeah, it's a very attractive rom-com package, but inside there are these little things um, that really sort of takes it beyond that that really superficial package. But but at the end of the day, Wei Tushin said himself that Kate Number Seven and and Cedric Bali and even Kano they're sort of like full course meals, but Fifty Two Hertz is sort of meant to be a light dessert compared to those films. So it's not gonna deal with these heavy issues in a very heavy way instead he sort of just tiptoes around it but in and without getting away from the fact that it's a sort of colorful bright musical about love right very interesting i'm looking forward to see it i tend to enjoy musicals um so keep your eyes and ears peeled for that how in terms of soundtrack right does it does it seem like the soundtrack is gained any popularity at all is this something that uh you know, people would want to go out and buy as well. Well, the um, the soundtrack I think is doing well in Taiwan, obviously, because the film has slowly picked up word of mouth a little bit, and of course, it has a lot of built-in fan base um, uh, with the singers, the the lead singers being in bands um, and pop groups. Um, and if you want to t- you want to try it out, um, the soundtrack is actually on Spotify um, and maybe US iTunes. I'm not sure, but it's definitely on Spotify. And I've been listening to some of the the songs that I do like. Um, and um, but I always sort of encourage people to watch the film instead of uh, before they listen to the music. Um, maybe listen to it once or twice before the music really gets into your mind so you can get a taste of what the music is like. But I would say sort of save the surprise um, of the music before you know, just save it until you watch the film so you kind of get that 
get that fresh feeling when you're watching the film. All right. Thank you for that, Mr. Ma. We'll be back after this short break with our next review of Our Sister Mambo. <laughs> So for our review this week, as I said, um, I wasn't able to get out to see a West Screen feature, so I decided to pop back onto Netflix uh, for a rewatch of Our Sister Mambo. Uh, this is a film from 2015 out of Singapore from a director known as Ho Wee Ding, who's Malaysian-born, I believe, but uh, he's worked a lot in Taiwan cinema, which is a, a subject of this episode as well. Um, the cast features Michelle Chong as the second daughter, Mambo, uh, Moses Lim, a uh, veteran actor from Singaporean television uh, and some film as the family patriarch, Mr. Wong. Audrey Lowe is his wife, and the other three daughters are rounded out by um, Ethel Yap, Un Shu An, and Joey Leong. The story uh, is an homage. Ama- excuse me. <coughs> the story is an homage to Cathay films of old. Uh, the story follows the Wong family, who is led by their film-loving father and includes his K-pop-loving wife and his four daughters, as I mentioned, Grace, Mambo, Rose, and June, each of them with their own share of life issues. A film, the film here is loosely based on the 1957 Cathay classic Our Sister Hetty, uh, and it was commissioned in part by the Cathay organization as sort of a celebration of, uh, you know, their anniversary. And... As such, you know, because it's a commissioned film, you know it's going in, it's not going to be too controversial, especially because you're dealing with, you know, Singaporean cinema here. Um, There's not going to be anything really uh, too much that's going to be offensive or or overly political as as such. Um, It's really just a film based on nostalgia. But it's nothing that's so in your face that I think film fans at least would find too overbearing. Um, there's reflected in lots of contextual references. There's a very special cameo, uh, towards the end as well. And at times it does feel that, um, a few of the more modern cameos are a bit forced. So there's a couple of Singapore celebrities. There's like a celebrity chef who's thrown in there, um, for a small role. And there's a celebrity blogger, um, who goes by the tag name of Shashue, um, uh, you know who who has a has a small role in there. Um, again, these are nothing that it, for for an outsider are gonna be you know over uh, you know points of contention or anything. But they for me they kind of just stood out a little bit. The idea here too is that um, as a film that's based around this family, you're gonna want to like the characters more than anything else because they spend so much time with them. And for the most part, all of the characters. Um, in this family do give you this nice sense of family feeling. You do get interested in them. Um, there, There is one minor problem I have with the family that I'll talk about uh, towards the end. 
But as the film's title indicates, Mambo, played by Michelle Chong, who is also the star of the film Kevin talked about a couple weeks ago uh, in Lulu the Movie, um, you'd think she might get the central focus. She's the second daughter, the second eldest daughter, and this really isn't the case. Um, the time is kind of split between the daughters for the most part, and a lot of the focus is really on the Audrey, Audrey Lowe character as uh, the mom. She tends to steal the show as sort of a typical um, Asian household matriarch, uh, but there's a slight twist to it, and one of the issues that I really had with her is that she does seem much younger than her husband, Mr. Wong, um, played by Moses Lim. Um, that kind of goes away after a while, but there are just a couple scenes where it kind of stands out that she's, because in, in reality, I think she's only like in her early 30s. Um, and I'm thinking there's no way she's going to be Michelle Chong's mom. Um, but her performance does kind of pull it out for most of the movie. Um, and so with a commissioned film like this, there's no real antagonist, per se. Uh, each of the daughters does have an issue to deal with, and that issue tends to drive their matriarchal mother into momzilla mode for a time. And very often she just heads to the temple to pray it out, and the situation kind of resolves itself. Um, so there's no real sense of a, uh, of a, of a driving point of plot um, that this family has to overcome. It's just these kind of minor set piece issues that, that pop up in the narrative. Um, for example, Mambo is quitting her high paid job as a lawyer to become a chef and basically starting out at ground zero, you know, washing dishes and, and uh, chopping onions and things. And this is a great source of aggravation for her mom who thinks that, you know, being a high paid lawyer is a great thing and working as a Level entry chef is a terrible thing. Um, the eldest daughter, Grace, has a boyfriend from mainland China, and that is a whole other can of worms. Um, the third daughter, Rose, uh, just wants to be a party girl, and their youngest daughter, June, um, seems to be sparking off a new relationship. And so each of these w girls, as the name would imply, is kind of named after Cathay movies, characters, and actresses of old. So, for example, um, Mambo... The, the second daughter is named after the film Mambo Girl. Uh, Grace is named after the actress um, who was very popular during that era. Um, Rose, named after Wild Wild Rose, and so forth and so on. And Mr. Wong, as a film buff, is, you know, he's really in love with film. He works as the head of a film museum. Um, and so we get occasional, you know, flashes of, of some of these classic films and references to things and he probably has the best job ever let me just say that because i mean who out there that's a film buff wouldn't want to get paid to just work in a film museum and walk around and you know uh talk about old films and and do this stuff and get get paid right that'd be a great job i'd love that job uh um each of these scenarios though ultimately gets resolved in a very easy way and it's almost disney-esque in a fashion i mean sort of a you know this works out happily ever after kind of a thing um, and again, this kind of ties it back to this, the idea that it's a commissioned film and I didn't, they didn't want to get too political or have it get too overly dramatic. So at times it just kind of feels very similar to uh, Singapore TV dramas where things you know, tend to just work out by the end of the series and everybody's fine and everybody's happy. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so it really just becomes a family piece and the family is what's going to make or break the film with you for you. So if you like the family, you like the characters, you'll like this film. I was fine with it, but then again, I'm a sucker for film and film nostalgia, so 
it really worked for me. For somebody else who's not that into it, who doesn't really care about these old films as much, um, they might feel that the pacing is just a, a bit flat. Um, there's a very solid rendition, too, of the song Jajambo, uh, originally from The Wild Wild Rose, uh, sung in a later part of the film that's really good. Um, and given how rarely that Singapore really makes films compared with other markets, you know, I mean, you've got, of course, it's easy to compare with the occasional Jack Neo film that comes out. Um, and you won't find that kind of level of complexity or humor here. Um, but again, if you're a fan of Asian cinema at all, I would say, you know, this is out there. And especially if you're somebody who loves some of the old classic Cathay films, you know, do check this out because it's really just a love letter um, to those films of old. And, and it's still quite nicely put together and quite nicely done. So uh, I do believe, you know, it's out there on U.S. Netflix. I'm pretty sure it's going to be on Hong Kong Netflix, too. I think I saw a link for it over on uh, Vicky.com. So if you're a Vicky subscriber, so it's out there. I did not find any physical media versions out there anywhere. This is one of the, the, the sort of bad issues with Singaporean stuff is there's not they don't make a lot of physical media available for, for their stuff, which is a shame. Um, so I couldn't find it on Amazon or, or places like that. But uh, it looks like there are several streaming options for you to check out out there. And again, um, it's it's a it's a well, you know, well-made quality little film. Check it out if you get a chance. Um, Kevin, I do have a question for you. Yes. Now, because you, I mean, you don't work for Cathay. You are a client of them, right? Um, it, the, the Cathay film and the Cathay uh, airline, are they still under a big umbrella organization or are they separate entities? They're completely different. Cathay Pacific, um, as far as I know, Cathay started as Cathay Films um in in hong kong and and they made a lot of these you know old hong kong films but cathay pacific as far as i know um uh was not connected to that same organization right so i'm not just entirely sure it's completely different okay i wasn't it's sure. completely different it's actually it was founded um so cathay the organization cathay organization was uh based in hong kong and um and uh if i could do some real quick research here but um they of course had a huge um, um, presence in Hong Kong, and then it sort of shifted down to Southeast Asia. When they expanded beyond Hong Kong, um, I'm sorry, actually, Cathay organization was founded in 1935 uh, down in Malaysia, and from there they expanded to Singapore, and then they um, then I guess they they uh, then acquired a company in Hong Kong in 1955, and that became MP and GI, and slowly that's how the then it was renamed Cathay. So actually, Cathay is a Southeast Asian organization. The Cathay organization, which is the film empire, um, started in Malaysia and Singapore, and then expanded Hong Kong. And then they withdrew. Uh, essentially, they sort of slowly left. I think when against when they were going up against Shaw, they lost. They lost to Shaw, um, Shaw Brothers, and then they sort of slowly. Um, uh, uh, retreated sort of back to Malaysia and, and Singapore, and they still have a huge, huge presence uh, there. Um, but Cathay Pacific was founded in 1945 by an Australian, and then it was later brought by Swire, uh, the, the UK corporation. So they share a similar name, but as far as I know, they're not uh, a connected uh, corporate. corporate. Yeah. All right, excellent. But the Cathay organization is still active, as you said, in Southeast Asia. 
gets hugely uh, active. I think they they definitely have one of the biggest cinema chains in uh, in uh, in Singapore. And 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 if you remember, this is actually my sister Mambo is the Cathay, I think seventieth seventieth anniversary film. I think it was the eightieth. I think eightieth anniversary film. So um, and obviously they they still very much remember their heyday in Hong Kong cinema. So which is why they decided to remake their one of their Hong Kong films instead of a, a Southeast Asian film. Yeah. Although I should bring up the director, Ho Wee Ding. Um, like you said, he's actually mainly based in Taiwan. And if you do have a chance, I would check out his breakthrough film, which is Pinoy Sunday, which is about two um, uh, Filipino, I think, migrant workers in Taiwan trying to move a couch. And it's a very, very charming film. Uh, and it's a very enjoyable one. And I highly recommend it if you have a chance to see it. All right. There you have it. Who says you don't learn anything on this show? <laughs> You said it. What the hell? <laughs> I didn't say it. I educate. Oh, no. <laughs> my high horse. I'm sorry. I'm getting a high horse. No, I, I try to spread my knowledge to the people. To the people. Yes. We're all about sharing. Yeah. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Okay, if you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at Kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Please follow us on Twitter, twitter.com, Kongcast. And you can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and everything that he's doing. Where can they find out more about you, sir? Well, you can read my writing uh, on the Cathay Pacific Airways and Cathay Dragons in-flight magazines at Discovery and, excuse me, Silk Road. Um, for the February issue, um, I wrote about Elma Dovar's Julieta in the World Film Club section and also wrote a few TV reviews. Um, so you can check those out. Um, I think we have a digital site coming up in the next month or so. So you will be able to see some of our in-flight entertainment uh, content. Not the films, but I mean the articles um, on the website. Uh, and I'll publicize the site when it is up. Um, also, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Um, and you can email me at thegoldenrock at gmail.com. All right. Excellent. Coming up on our next episode, uh, should be episode 217, um, looks like you're going to be telling us about the Nicholas Say cooking film, right? Oh, man, am I? <laughs> yes. Uh, Coke Up a Storm. That'll be your next film. Yeah. All right. Yes. And hopefully, if I get up to the cinema, I should be able to talk about Lego Batman, the movie, or something else between now and then. Uh, you never know what's going on with my schedule of late. But uh, we'll be here to talk about something for sure. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the Screen West Screen Podcast saying we wish you good viewing. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.